Welcome to the Unafraid Podcast on the OKC First Podcast Network. My name is Zach Lucero, and I am the youth and creative pastor here at the Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene. That's right, the Nazarene. And you've heard him just now. He's tall. He's amazing. He's great. Suave, even. That's the fancy way to say very handsome. Uh, that is John Middendorf, our senior pastor. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I always enjoy these times. It's good for my self-image, so thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize I'd be flirting this much no. today, but it's, well, here we are. <laughs> it just kind of comes out. I don't I don't actually plan these, uh, these little People intros. People writing letters already. Yeah, okay. I know. People are upset. They're always going to be upset at us, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a bromance is what we yep. would call it. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it bro. is what it is. I do. Uh, one of my favorite things that we do is that uh, usually when we answer the phone, we we do some sort of iteration of a broism, Yo, like yeah. bro, like bro chacho or bro. Oh, that would chip. be a fun. We did do that as a game for a while we, there, right? Did we? Like, I don't. I don't remember. If, did we play that on the pod? I just. I, I, it's, didn't it's we hard. have like send in your favorites, and we had a couple. Oh, that's true. It, it's really hard to figure out what's real life and what's podcast life. Uh, it's all starting to mix together. I know. Um, you know, John, Tamara and I talked about on our last pod, I'm assuming that this, well, actually, I don't know. Tamara and I talked about at some point on a pod, I don't know when this pod is dropping. Yeah, yeah. So I just realized I might've been, <laughs> I might've just uh, gotten my dates mixed up. But at some point, Tamara and I talked about church fame and that we're church famous. We're oh. all church famous. It's not real fame. <laughs> it's not like it's the not. real thing. It's just, but it does go straight to your head. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's just a lot of that. Like, yeah, I, uh. You know me, but I don't know you. Tammy but, uh, Wallace. Tammy Wallace. She's great. But this pod is not about her. No. <laughs> Stop talking about her. Okay. My gosh. No, I do have something I want to talk about, All though. Right, cool. Yeah. Because I know people come to us for commentary on the news sometimes, that's right? right? That's, that's usually what they tune in for. I have an absolutely nonfiction story that I'm going to describe for you, non-fiction. and I would like for you to comment okay. on it, if you would. Yep. Recently, we, we enjoyed Halloween. Yeah. And as... As is the case all over the country, I guess all over the world. I don't know if the whole world does. The whole world celebrate Halloween? Pretty sure they do. Okay. I think I don't know. Um, not, trick I don't or treaters. Speak, I don't speak for the whole world. Just right. by the way, I don't. Trick or treaters. Yeah. Uh, Dateline, Austin, Texas. Okay. <laughs> uh, trick or treater was bitten on the face by a monkey, owned by. <laughs> Special teams coach of the University of Texas Longhorns. Oh, I, re- I did read about this. This is the weirdest story. And I by love, the way, if you just so need much. endless hours, if you are a Twitter scroller, if you if you somehow figure out a way to look this up on Twitter, there are so many hilarious things said and so many hilarious memes. But this is what happened. The jokes write themselves. A kid comes to this guy's house. Yeah. And... Uh, a monkey belonging either to him or to the person that he's living with uh, somehow gets a hold of a trick-or-treater mm-hmm. and has to be pried off of this trick-or-treater and the world has just exploded there in Austin. I have questions. Yes. Okay. First question. Are we sure it was a real monkey? It was Halloween. Are we, are we sure this oh. wasn't a person dressed as a monkey? Um, I'm sure the rabies uh, might might say otherwise. <laughs> it was a small-ish <laughs> monkey. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe, I guess it's not out of the realm of possibility. I've seen crazier but... things. But I just, just, just throwing it out. Just asking okay. questions, John. All right. Just asking questions. Uh, all right. Second question. Yeah. You said this is a special teams coordinator? Yeah. Do all special teams coordinators own monkeys? Is this like a thing? Wow. Something they... else I don't. Something else I don't know, but I'm going to hazard a guess. 
I'm going to guess that not very many special teams coaches like at D1 programs. over under, over under, mm, there's a lot of special teams coordinators one. in the world. How Let's about say, over no, under one? Over under, <laughs> over under Push. one and a half. <laughs> I'm going to say under. You're going to take the under? I don't know. That's, that's I'm taking the field. I okay, think I might, okay. I don't, there's probably another one somewhere. Somewhere out there. I don't know. Just we, like, should, we should put that out there just for like a, like a poll out there. Yeah. Do you know? Please send us the names of. Let us know if you know somebody with a monkey. I actually, that's weird. Like I, I was, I was on a, I do photo shoots. Uh, I was doing a senior shoot um, a month or two ago and we we're up on this rooftop in downtown Oklahoma city. Yeah. And there were, there's always other photographers roaming around and there was another group and I didn't really notice them until I heard the sound of a monkey that uh, they, this kid, this guy ha- I don't know. I didn't ask questions, but this guy brought a monkey for his senior photo shoot. And I, is he a special teams coach? I, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> Seemed a little young for it, but, <laughs> but you know, I mean, he could have been a prodigy, yeah. but, um, didn't ask questions. I really wish I would have, or at least gotten the name of that photographer just so I could see how that turned out. Cause yeah. I've always wanted to know what it's like to take a picture of a monkey. Now you and I know people, I think, friends of ours mm-hmm. um, that we're concerned about yeah. who are fans of the University of Texas football program. Yeah, that's true. In your opinion, mm-hmm. should these people be seeking therapy or have they already sought therapy? Um, that is an excellent question. Um, yes, all of it. Um, <laughs> if, they, if, they're already, if they have already sought the therapy, they probably should get double. Just, yeah. just, I don't know, add another day to their week, get another, maybe, maybe they need to, fi- if they have a therapist, they need to ask their therapist who their therapist is and go up a level. Ooh, wow. And then maybe uh, eventually they'll just keep asking and then they'll beat the final boss and, <laughs> and then they're perfect. They're healed. And I also want to know, you know, in a day when you can kind of, you can kind of tailor make your own insurance policy, health insurance policy, That's true. should there be one, should there be a line in Kristen's policy that says <laughs> this I, I will have coverage just in case a football coach's monkey bites somebody else on the face. I mean it's and embarrasses like, the program. You know, John, every every rule uh is a rule because somebody has done it at some point. Yeah. Like the McDon like a, like when you get coffee through a drive thru, that's why I like the McDonald's cups say this is hot. Very hot. Because somebody spilled it on themselves, yeah. sued McDonald's and right. I mean, and just any other crazy rule that you have seen, like, hey, don't eat um, don't eat that Play-Doh. I mean, it means that don't uh, do it. a somebody teenager, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe one of our coworkers has right. eaten Play-Doh before. Oh, wow. But I think we're at a point now where this, I've never heard of this before, but I'm sure insurance companies, like with COVID and, you know, all that stuff, are now having to add a clause in that says, hey, you know what? We will cover you. Yeah. And, and some will be like, happens. no, yeah. we refuse to cover you um, unless you're a special teams coach because you probably have an animal like this. <laughs> right. I mean, wait, do special teams coaches have their own insurance, like special? Oh, special, special teams coach special, insurance. Special, special team coach insurance. They probably should. It's I a, mean, honestly, it's treacherous. Yeah. It's, it's we great. should probably make it very clear that we here at Oklahoma City First Church and the Unafraid, Unafraid podcast, we are absolutely against monkeys biting trick-or-treaters on the face. We, we are making light, but we do not – again, we do not want this to happen. At least totally, I don't. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Would I laugh if it happened? 
I would after I found out that they were okay. That, that, like, the because monkey? obviously, yeah, but really I care about the monkey, honestly. <laughs> I work with teenagers and they're, most of them were more concerned about Harambe than, than the oh, child. They, they, yeah. blame, they blame the child. The child for the, the Harambe. The child for Harambe. I mean, this weirdly has come up before. Yeah. Um, within this semester, even. But, um, really? Yeah, it's strange. Um, shout out to Tucker Garrison. You're, you're my guy, Tucker. He's the best. Truly the best. Some He's of the, the best, best stories. But, uh, John... Uh, I think you did a, an interview with uh, Sir Michael Gerson. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So Mike Gerson uh, is is really kind of an inspiration. I mean, I mean, kind of a mentor to me because he's a guy who uh, deeply motivated by his faith to get involved in the legislative process in in the form of advocacy. Um. But he is a, he is cut from our bolt of cloth. I mean, I think I think we we resonate. He's kindred spirit. I'm trying to find the right phrase there. Um, and so we are. A, he writes for the Atlantic. He writes for the Washington Post. Uh, he was a key member of the Bush administration and one of the people who helped create PEPFAR, the president's uh, the program for the alleviation of um, it was is to combat AIDS in Africa. Boy, I really messed that up. But he was one of the chief architects of that entire program uh, and saves, and, and because of it, probably saved tens of millions of lives. Unbelievable. Um, shaped a continent with that, with that program. And, and Mike Gerson was one of the people who helped put that together. And now he is, like I said, out, he's out of politics in terms of his day job, but he is still involved in the political conversation and the process, trying to get the people of, of God to understand how important it is that they continue to show up for these conversations, continue to show up in offices, write letters, make phone calls to make the voice of the Christian heard uh, in ways that accomplishes what we understand to be the gospel, caring for the least of these. And and Mike is in full recognition that, that, that there are some other voices that w- might make you believe something other than that. Um, something more isolationist in its in its sort of tone or even in its content. But Mike wants to say, wait, we've got to keep showing up on behalf of the least of these, whether they're in our country or around the world. And just a great man, great guy, feels it deeply. And we were lucky to get him on the, on the podcast. Absolutely. So what you're about to hear is John and Wes, who you heard in part one. My guy, Wes Veach. Wes Veach. Uh, you heard him in part one. Uh, the, those two, they interview uh, Michael Gerson. And uh, with that, Mike Gerson. We are very excited to have a guy here today who has become something of a patron saint for us. Uh, Mike Gerson is somebody who has offered up a lot of leadership and inspiration for us here. Wes and I are big fans and readers, and so Wes, why don't you give us uh, his official bio? Yeah, Mike, I am so happy to have you on the pod today. 
Uh, I'm great. It's great to be with you or back with you. Yeah, so man. That's great. Yeah. yeah, we uh we love the ways we've worked with you through the one campaign, and I've read so much of your stuff that you've published. Uh, so for those who don't know, uh, Mike Gerson, uh, he writes twice weekly in the Washington Post. Uh, he wrote uh, a fantastic book called Heroic Conservatism, Why Republicans Need to Embrace America's Ideals and Why They Deserve to Fail if They Don't. Um, and then he co-authored another book, uh, City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era. Um, you uh, might have seen him on PBS. Uh, he'll appear on NewsHour, on Face the Nation. Um, he is one of our senior advisors at the One Campaign, um, helps us to fight extreme pover poverty and preventable diseases around the world. Um, and uh, he was also, until 2006, a top aide to President George W. Bush, uh, as assistant to the president for policy and strategic planning. And prior to that, he actually served in the White House as deputy assistant to the president and director of presidential speech writing and assistant to the president for speech writing and policy advisor. Um, he has all the experience in the world that leads to making uh, some, big, some big changes uh, and doing a lot of good and being in those rooms where it can be done Mike, thank you so much for what you've done and for talking with us today. No, thank you for that. I really I appreciate it. Um, and it's great to reestablish our connection because we've been, we've known one another over the years and I'm really glad to be with you. Man, that bio, like I'm exhausted. <laughs> just, <laughs> just hearing about all, that's my first question for you. Like, how are you doing? And then tell us a little bit about what you are doing these days. Sure. You know, I, I got up at um, about 4.30 this morning to write. It, it was a writing morning. Mm. And so I had to have my column done for tomorrow's paper, um, which I did on Winston Churchill, of all people. But wow. um, it, I, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, I, my day job in a certain way is a twice weekly column. It just takes a lot of effort, research, writing. Um, and, um, but then I'm also a senior advisor at one and uh, spent a lot of time doing events for them and um, yeah, advising. And, uh, you know, that has been a, uh, a real calling. I, in part of my life, the column part, is really the realm of a lot of conflict and division. That's by nature almost, but even now more than, than usual. Um, so uh, talking about these one issues of uh, poverty and uh, preventable disease is a great, a refreshing part of my life. It really gives me strength um, to be able to talk about areas we can agree on and great humanitarian causes that we can put forward. Um, and for me, that's a, it's a, uh, uh, I don't know, it's like a vacation when I do the, do the stuff for one. I so. understand that. Mike, can you tell us just a little bit about your faith journey in your life, um, kind of where you came from, how it started, uh, and how it's kind of evolved over the years? Yeah, I, it's probably typically an American in a certain way in, in that it's very diverse. So part of my father's part of the family comes from New York City. They're kind of secular Jews. Um, and then um, my uh, grandfather, my mother's father, 
was a Nazarene minister um, and uh, had a church in the backwoods of Kentucky. Really? Um, and I, I remember my um, grandmother, the d- diminutive woman in the, but this in then, then was really the Nazarene way. You know, never wore makeup a day in her life, never cut her hair in, at all. I remember her you know, rolling it out across the room, essentially. Um, wow. And, you know, it, it was, um, uh, so my mom and dad came from very different backgrounds and then uh, ended up at a very reformed Presbyterian church, um, kind of intellectually inclined um, Presbyterianism. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's where I made my pr- profession of faith when I was young. Um, uh, but I will tell you, I then went off to, to study. I was interested in foreign policy. I went off to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service and was thought I, that's what I was going to do after high school. I went to Christ, big Christian high school. Um, and, um, uh, but then really became convicted, both intellectually and spiritually, that I needed to, before I did anything else, know what I really believed on the most basic things in life. Um, and I switched. I made a. I went to Wheaton College outside Chicago, um, and uh, was a uh, theology and philosophy major there. Um, and uh, you know, tried to put together my own view of the world. <laughs> um, you know, my, my parents were very patient with me. No one really wants to pay for a theology degree, <laughs> which doesn't really get you very far usually. Um, but uh, but my dad, you know, paid for that. Um, and then, but I, I did, I was headed, you know, not to go too far into it, but I was headed to uh, seminary at Fuller Theological Seminary in, in California and was accepted there and had my advisor and, and then got a call to come to Washington to help um, uh, Chuck Colson, uh, you know, who was kind of my mentor um, at Prison Fellowship Ministries. And that he, he was Washington-based, and that got me pushed in a political, uh, more political direction. So went to Capitol Hill and, and on from there. Um, but that's my basic uh, faith journey. So one of the things that... Uh, I admire the most, one of the things that makes your message so compelling is what I would call the romantic way that you insist that faith has to come to bear on these issues. And you've already mentioned Chuck Colson. I'm curious, are there other voices, perhaps other authors, maybe even books, that you would identify as crucial in your development toward this Theology of Christian Advocacy, which we will talk more about later. But who are the voices that shape Mike Gerson? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Chuck, but my experience at Prison Fellowship was really extraordinary and life-changing in many ways. Um, here were people I got to know that were had committed terrible crimes, um, and uh, more developed and well-rounded Christians than I could ever hope to become. Um, and it really illustrated to me what the kind of renovation of the heart could look like um, in, in the real world. Um, 
And I really became convinced that a lot of these faith-based institutions brought, to, when it came to social engagement, they brought a unique perspective, you know, not just to educate people, not just to challenge people, those are all important things, um, but uh, to um, give them a new heart. Um, and, uh, and that's where reform really works, like prison reform really works, is when, when that happens. Um, and so I became excited about trying to find ways in the public sphere to uh, encourage the work of private and religious institutions in meeting social needs. Um, and I uh, then went to Capitol Hill as a policy director for U.S. Senator Dan Coats, who was a Wheaton grad, um, someone I shared a lot of background with. Um, and, uh, and we put together a set of ideas that came to be known as compassionate conservatism. It's essentially using government not to expand government, but actually to expand the efforts of private and religious institutions meeting human needs. Um, and that for me was, I, I, you know, the, the way I got engaged in public policy um, was on that uh, set of issues. And then, you know, that transition over time when I was at the White House to uh, more global issues, but that's, but, you know, Chuck and Dan Coates were really great influences on me. Um, and uh, I, when I was at Wheaton, I got to study a summer with John Stott, who was a great oh, yeah. uh, Anglican theologian, um, you know, just a, a real example for me. Um, but these are some of the people that kind of touched my life. It's beautiful. Thank you. Mike, you had mentioned while you were at the White House focusing on more international issues, you were directly involved while you were there with the creation of PEPFAR. What are the what are the estimates right now of what kind of a difference that has made? Well, maybe if I can go back one step and t talk about what we were seeing around the years 2000, 2001, 2002. You bet. You, you really had a cresting, you know, crisis, a, a, a wave of death that was sweeping across the African continent. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first visited there, you, I, you would meet, you would go to shanty towns in South Africa and you would see grandchildren and grandparents, but that intermediary uh, generation of people, their, the parents were just all gone. Um, I mean, they had been taken by this terrible uh, disease. And it was not just people that were not just the poor, even though it was also the poor, but it was the people that make, you know, civilized society work. I mean, uh, nurses and doctors and uh, civil servants and uh, you know, people involved in finance and other issues. I mean, this was just cutting a, a uh, you know, swathe across, uh, across of Africa. And, you know, we had the, you know, the opportunity and responsibility to respond to that. Um, President Bush um, proposed the PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief in the 2003 State of the Union address came as kind of a surprise to Washington that was not expecting it. Um, 
but it uh, sets specific targets for saving lives, providing treatment, and caring for orphans, um, all three aspects of that. Um, and, you know, I haven't looked at the latest figures, um, but I think you can say that PEPFAR played a very important part in probably saving about 20 million lives since then. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, that's just an extraordinary figure. Um, and it didn't stop there. I was involved in the creation of a program called the President's Malaria Initiative, which, uh, you know, it's mainly children under six that die of malaria in Africa. And, um, and that program has saved over 5 million lives over the last several years, been continued by other presidents. Um, and, um, and then we spent a lot of time with the Global Fund, encouraging the Global Fund. Um, you know, the Global Fund, if people don't know, has a unique contribution because it takes care of all three diseases, um, uh, HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, um, which really are, have tremendous impact across the African continent. Um, so I got to sit in the Oval Office and watch the President of the United States make the decision to approve the largest initiative to fight a single disease in human history. Um, and, uh, and then got to go to Africa to see its implementation. And you, you literally had people, they called it the Lazarus effect, but you literally had people that were coming from death's door back to full health. Um, and it was the closest that I had seen to ever seen to all the miracles of the new I mean, this was routine all over Africa. Um, and uh, it's still a very important program. Uh, and it's and in some ways, it's also a model because it was a genuinely bipartisan effort that, yeah. that kind of passed this thing um, with the help of Christian advocates and global health advocates, you know, people that didn't work together that much before then. Um, who then came together to advocate, I think, for one of these great, you know, for these great works of mercy that the United States was engaged in through a variety of administrations. Um, and, uh, and so that was one, one of probably my best experience while I was in government, incredible. Um, was watching those programs come together. Uh I know we've, you know, followed the Global Fund a lot through one and obviously their work with, uh, in conjunction with PEPFAR, working with HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. You mentioned seeing a wave of death at the beginning of the, of the millennium um, that just had to be dealt with. And we are now living through a wave of death across the African continent. How has these organizations fight against HIV AIDS been impacted by what's been happening the last year, year and a half? Well, I think the figures are pretty clear. It has interrupted a significant number of these programs and efforts. I mean, things like normal vaccination programs that have not been as uh, complete as in the past because of the pandemic. Um, you know, vaccination is uh, through Gavi, the uh, you know an organization most people don't know about, but the U.S. funds a lot of vaccines, uh, for ch childhood vaccines, um, and uh, saving millions of lives again. But when you have a situation like COVID, it interrupts those supply chains, it interrupts those health systems, um, 
makes it harder to do the things that you were doing successfully before in many ways. This is, it's one thing that I really would want people to know that uh, these efforts that, that uh, I've been talking about and that one advocates for are tremendously successful. Um, you know, they've been implemented well with, you know, local partners and faith-based institutions and um, faith-based hospitals and charities. It's, it's gone, you know, these efforts have gone really well, but as in everything else, COVID has been disruptive to those, um, to implementing those efforts. Um, and so the replenishment of the global fund is going to be especially important this time around. Um, you know, uh, COVID is undermining economic growth in a lot of Africa, which is really unfortunate because many countries were on a, a bet, much better path. That makes it harder to have health, you know, a healthy country in the long term if you're, if, if you're impoverished. Um, and um, I think that it's really evident that in the this medium term, that uh, countries in Africa are going to need a lot of help adapting to the additional burden of COVID um, as they try to fulfill other important um, roles and needs. And 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 you mentioned it. I mean, the the global fund is up for replenishment in twenty twenty two. Are Congress is not healthy right now. Do you think something that both sides of the aisle have been able to get behind in the past, do you think Congress is going to have a hard time prioritizing the replenishment of the global fund next year? I guess I, I would have to hedge the answer. I, I hope not. Yeah. I actually think not. I mean, there have been key members of Congress, House and Senate, Republicans and Democrats who have carried this message on, on uh, the, ne the necessity of global health and America's role in the world. Um, and that has taken place, you know, we increased a lot of funding the Bush administration, but it also continued and expanded through the Obama administration. And then uh, as also, uh, it survived the Trump era. Um, you know, a lot of very responsible voices in Congress said we need to continue these efforts because it, of what it does for America and the world and what it does for the world. Um, and uh, so I think there are a lot of people that share that vision on Capitol Hill. But as always, they need to hear from people who say this is a priority for Americans. Um, you know, there, there's a, a good public policy argument, but it's different when somebody gets a handwritten letter or when they get an office visit or they get, um, you know, communication or they, somebody mentioned something, you know, when when a member of Congress is, is back home, you know, from Washington at a town hall, um, you know, these things really, really do matter. They, they give political figures kind of the cover, the political cover to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and that I think is a very important role that one has played over the years, um, and uh, um, and you know, and I th I think that that's an important um, Christian calling in many ways. Um, you know, one is is not a faith based organization, but is a faith friendly organization. It's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I'm involved with it. A lot of institutions in you know social justice, public policy are not necessarily faith friendly. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but one has been the tremendous exception to that. Um, and it's been an exception to the, these issues have been an exception to the bitterness of our politics in many ways. This again and again, bipartisan group majorities have come together to support these programs in the US Congress. I expect that to happen, but it's going to, you know, we're gonna to have to make it happen. Yeah. You talked about the, the necessity of having voices of faith in the uh, the first days of the PEPFAR movement, and I've heard you to I've heard you talk about it again in in almost romantic terms. Like we need the church to come back to these kinds of tables, to come back to these conversations. Uh, do these voices of faith really help move the ball down the field as it has to do with this kind of legislation, like the Global Fund and PEPFAR? Do voices of faith really help move the needle? Well, I've seen it happen. I, you know, that's, I guess, all I can say. I mean, this is a case where um, it's, and I don't want to sound too cynical, but most people are not engaged. Okay. Yeah. And that means if you engage on issues of conscience, you can have a disproportionate influence in American politics. Okay. Well, that's true. You can be that kind of voice because it's not all that common. Um, and so, you know, when you when a uh, pastor from a congressional district talks with a member of Congress, they listen. Um, you know, when a pastor or and were key layman from a church that a senator comes from, um, talk to him. You know that makes a huge difference. Um, ultimately, from my experience, you want to get members of Congress over there, okay? Um, and that can be an extraordinary experience. Um, where you see the implementation of these programs, the saving of millions of lives, the Christian joy of so many people involved in these efforts, Africans involved in these efforts. Um, so I mean, one thing one has tried to do over years is over the years is get the members to just go and see it. Um, but uh, but it, it, I have really seen how um, key influencers in congressional districts and in uh, you know senatorial in the context of the Senate uh, can make their voice heard and have a real, real effect. It's beautiful. So with people of faith uh, needing to be involved, having a disproportionate impact, if you wind up engaging with these issues, people of faith don't always agree on the best way to do that or anything sometimes. What would be your what would be your idea for how Christians can best disagree with each other on sure. issues that we think are important that sometimes aren't as important important as they are? Yeah, it it is um I guess I'll put this pretty bluntly. I think the way that Christians engage in the public square indicates whether they believe in the image of God in other people or not. Oh, man. You really believe that your opponent is created in the image of God, has essential value, no matter what their views are. That's and cool. how do you show that? Okay. And that a lot of that is not what we argue, it's how we argue. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are always going to have policy disagreements, and in fact, our institutions assume that. I mean, that is the basis for our constitutional system of disagreement. 
Um, but, you know, I think that disagreement is important, but mutual contempt is bad for democracy. And dehumanization is bad for democracy. And the it church. You can't work together on anything. Yeah. Um, and if Christians stand for anything in politics, it has to be everybody is created in God's image and has value. Um, and that, that I, you know, those issues are behind my one advocacy. But, you know, I also, I also try and fail like everyone fails um, to implement that into in arguing people with I disagree with. Um, that, um, you know, we can, uh, we can undermine our theology, our public theology in the world by cruelty and dehumanization. Um, and that is a very serious thing. Um, that's not just being wrong. It's actually undermining the appeal of the gospel. Absolutely um, right. And that I think is a real, uh, it's a real challenge for people going forward. But as I say, I know that's not always easy. I mean, I face it all the time, um, but it's, uh, it's something we have to aspire to. Yeah. And maybe this is just me asking for some advice because there is the matter of Christians disagreeing, but then there is the matter of Christians being the sources of disinformation. Like how, how would you suggest that I as a pastor, more importantly, how would you suggest that I as a believer deal with these uh, people who are or the sources of disinformation, and then the disinformation itself. You know, it's uh, not to complicate things at the beginning, but um, we now have a situation with social media and partisan media in the United States that has increased the velocity and impact of lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the lies can not, that used to, you'd have to spread with a, you know, uh, printing leaflets can, are now everywhere on the internet in a, in a second. And, uh, I, and it is hard for me, people to make informed decisions about good sources of information yeah. in our time. It's hard for young people. You see it in a lot of the, you know, the polling and studies that have been done. You know, they, they can't tell whether, whether there's a political slant or not in a, in a website, or they can't really tell if somebody is feeding them in misinformation or how to determine what are good sources of information. Um, that is just a skill. In, in a lot of ways, we're getting these kind of reams and reams of information, and we have to be our own editors, yeah. determining what is truthful and what is false, what is useful and what is foolish, you know. and. A lot of people aren't trained to do that. I mean, you know, that's people have not necessarily learned the best ways to do this. Um, but Christians have to try. Yeah. I mean, if Christians don't stand for the principle that truth matters, I don't know what they stand for. Um, you know, the reality here is that there, you know, we we don't all, uh, you know, truth is not completely relative in God's world. There are, in fact, ways that we can understand what's going on um, with the proper, in the proper way, in the, in the methods of science and in the methods of faith. Um, 
And, you know, my friend Francis Collins, the head of NIH, National Institutes of Health, mm -hmm. talks about those as the two books of God's revelation. Okay. You know, the scientific book by which we can learn things about the world through the scientific method, you know, and the book of, of and scripture and, and, uh, and faith by which we learn about things of the spirit. Um, and both of them are valid. Um, it's not a choice between one or the other. It's both yeah. and in, in this case. Um, and we really have seen a situation here where um, you had Christians share some of the delusions of their neighbors yeah. um, in a way that I think is discrediting. Um, you know, I think that people need to look for the truth. Um, and that means seeking out reliable information and knowledge, okay? Um, and not just being, you know, there's a passage that talks about being blown by the wind of every doctrine. But I, I think that that's a possibility I, for that people, you know, encounter the internet and become blown by the wind of every doctrine, okay? Um, and that I think is gonna, it's, it's a dangerous thing. Mike, uh, Wes is going to ask you one of our characteristic questions where the podcast is concerned, like, where do you see hope? I, I kind of want to want to take you down a little bit of a darker path first mm -hmm. and ask you what frustrates Mike Gerson, the Christian, the most these days, and how do you cope with that frustration? Um. Well, you've raised a kind of complex set of issues for me. Um, you know, I've spent a significant portion of my life trying to find a way to talk about Christian engagement in our public life that is uh, biblical, that is effective, that is uh, nonpartisan, that is unifying. Um, but that has not been the direction of my party. Um, and it's not been the direction of evangelicalism more broadly in America. Right. Um, now, I don't that I'm not hopeless about it, but the reality is that I've, uh, you know, that I feel very much like I'm paddling up a, up a current. Um, you know, I'm not riding a current, I'm fighting one. Yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, that can indeed be discouraging. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I won't go into it, but it's complicated for me by some health issues as well that just you know, sap your energy and your um, initiative. Um, and, um, but uh, I guess what I would say, in, you know, why do I continue doing it? Um, first of all, my, you know, Chuck Colson had a, um, had a thing, uh, you know, one of those placards on his desk when I knew him that said faithfulness, not success. Hmm. Um, and, the, and there's a paradox to this, that we're most successful eventually when we're the most faithful now, even if it's difficult. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think Christians are called to faithfulness in whatever circumstance they, they find themselves. And I'm in kind of a political circumstance. Um, and, um, but it is, a, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. And 
As I mentioned earlier, though, it's one reason I find the work of one just refreshing to my spirit. Um, because this honestly is an area which has been characterized by unity, bipartisanship, um, and great public purpose for the last 20 some years. Um, and, uh, you know, that to me is a, that's a, a bright spot of Christian engagement. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to, I'll, I'll put it this way, um, in the 20th century, I love reading history, and then in the 20th century, you had uh, government leaders meet in rooms in uh, Moscow and Beijing and Berlin, where they plotted the deaths of millions of people. Um, and I got to sit in the Oval Office and watch an American president make the decision to save the lives of millions of people. Um, and it is, you know, it, it is a kind of miracle in a certain way. It's a miracle because the we have miracle drugs um, and that we can give people access to them, but also a miracle in the way that it has uh, overcome some of the, the divisions and negative partisanship of our public life, um, this set of issues. So, you know, this is a hopeful thing. I, when I go to college campuses in particular, and I haven't been able to for, for a little bit, and talk about the one message and see, uh, you know, the idealism of young people and including Christian young people, um, you know, that, that heals your spirit. Um, it it uh, brings you back to, for more. Um, and, uh, um, but this has not been a, an easy period for me. So, yeah. Well, I just want to extend an official invitation for you to move to Oklahoma City <laughs> and uh, let us be your faith Thank community, you be honored yeah. to be your pastor and serve you communion every week. Scoggins, same for you listening in today. So, uh, short of that, we, we will pray for you. Uh, and I join you that. in this struggle. Um, and we have some other questions for you before we let you go. Sure, please, of course. I, I am curious as to, you mentioned finding some hope in the uh, idealism of youth. Uh, that is my question. Where does Mike Gerson go to find hope and inspiration? Well, I'll give you the short answer right now. I am working on a book, which is taking far too long, on the history of Christian social engagement in America. Oh, cool. Okay. Wow. And I'm profiling figures that have had uh, transformational models of social engagement from a Christian perspective. Okay. Um, that not, it, it's kind of starts with the first great awakening, um, goes through the second great awakening and then goes through the, the 20th century. Um, but, you know, I've done, I've done a chapter on somebody like um, uh, uh, John Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, um, and his activism, his conscience when it came to enslaved people, um, which was really an extraordinary, extraordinarily important thing. Yeah. Methodists really provided that uh, the numbers of advocacy for the abolition movement in uh, in Great Britain. Um, it was led by evangelicals like William Wilberforce, but the 
the foot soldiers for reform in Great Britain when it came to slavery were Methodists yep. um, and, and influenced by Wesley himself. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've come to really appreciate some less well-known figures like Isaac Bacchus, who was one of the great early Baptist voices in American history, um, talking about religious liberty as a kind of right of conscience. Um, and uh, so I've done a chapter profiling him, you know, Frederick Douglass and the way that he engaged with our, how he shared this white hot outrage about racism, but was also deeply committed to the constitutional process and the political process um, and believed that, uh, that redemption was possible. That's beautiful. Um, and, um, so I'm proud, you know, those are the kinds of people I, I spend a significant, I've been spending a significant amount of time in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, and there, there are plenty of people that, um, you know, were faced difficult circumstances in their own time and, and were bright spots of engagement. That's um, beautiful. And so the, those have been encouraging to me, but I'm only halfway through the book and it has to go quicker. <laughs> if you get to the 21st century, I know a church in Oklahoma City that would love to find itself in the pages of the Mike Gerson book. So just let me know if you need any contact info or anything oh, like that's that. That's great. Yeah. Sometimes it's harder to see your own time yeah. rather than looking in the past. Um, and uh, uh, but anyway, I, I'll take that seriously. <laughs> okay. We have uh, silliness now to end the uh, podcast. We always end with rapid fire questions, and uh, we always have to state for the audience that you have not been prepared for this silliness. And so Wes and I will take turns going back and forth. For example, here comes the first question. We are okay. curious to know what was the last song you listened to on your music device of choice, whether that be, in my case, a cassette deck or an eight-track player or an iPod, or, or what was the last song you listened to? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure of the exact name, but it was Bach. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm kind of a classical music guy, um, and I put on the – I have – you know, you can get on uh, – on Amazon, a uh, essentially do a station off a box, yeah. a box station, yeah. um, and uh, and that's often kind of what I what I've been listening to recently. So Beautiful. that's my answer. A little Bach rock, I got it. <laughs> the New York Times just did a feature on uh, five minutes that'll make you love Bach and all of these uh, music people wrote it and that. said you listen to these five minutes and you'll wind up loving it. Uh, okay, so my question is uh, a little selfish. My niece just started at Wheaton. Uh, what Great. are a couple of experiences, either something that's close by that she should go see or a restaurant that she should go visit that was one of <laughs> your old favorite haunts? What do you know that's there now that question. she can that oh, she can do? Yeah, I wish I guess I wish I had better recall. I know that I don't know if it exists anymore. But my roommate and I used to go at 2 a.m. to Wags um, and eat fried food. Um, that was in Glen Ellen. Um, and uh, and that, those are some of the best conversations you have um, in college or with uh, your roommates um, at 2 in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about important things and your views of important things. Um, but, uh, you know, I go back to Wheaton and it's, 
it's so much better than I was there. When I was there. <laughs> you know, the campus is marvelous and the teachers are extraordinary. And, um, but, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, there, I have a, I, that roommate that I was talking about actually died of AIDS in 1993. Mm, um, wow. And, um, but his, our friendship actually made meant a great deal to me. Um, and I still talk, you know, a couple of times a week with my another college roommate that I had at Wheaton. Um, so, I mean, you really will know people or you're likely to know people um, for the rest of your life because it's such a formative experience together. Yeah. yeah. Do you play a musical instrument? No. I grew up playing a piano, but that was, I was never showed the slightest talent. Okay. Well, then the question is, what's the musical instrument that you wish you could play really well in front of people? Um, you know, I guess if you're looking about, uh, I would say I'd love to play the cello like Yo-Yo Ma. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think that that instrument has a lot of, of uh, heart to it. Um, yeah. And uh, uh but I will never be able to do that. So <laughs> Bach um, and Yo-Yo Ma, uh, you are officially the classiest person we've ever had on our podcast. <laughs> Cello is my favorite instrument. Uh, are, are you an Enneagram 2? <laughs> in what? Are you an Enneagram 2? No. 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 Okay. <laughs> if, if Mike Gerson was a serial... What? Oh my gosh! <laughs> what box would you be in on the grocery shelf right now? Uh, not to sound too depressing, I'd probably be one of those healthier cereals that people don't buy. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Gerson, the grape nuts of Christian yeah. newspaper writers. Good and good for you. <laughs> hey, uh, you and your special someone have a a free night and a gift card to go wherever you want to go in your town for a nice meal. Where would you go? Oh, My wife, Dawn, um, and will appreciate that greatly. <laughs> where, where will you go? <laughs> where? Yeah. Your favorite um, place. You know, um, there are, I, there are places here in, we now live in the city, which I've never lived in the city before. Um, always lived in the Northern Virginia suburbs. I'm now living in Washington, D.C. Um, and there are some places I like to go back to that I was, when I was a college student at Georgetown University, would go to, um, you know, like Clyde's and some some of these others. Um, you know, I got uh, engaged to my life, wife at a Clyde's. Um, so there's just some familiar places in Washington for me that um, – that we kind of, you know, generally go back to when we, we have sentimental occasions. Um, that's great. But, uh, you know, that's, that's what we do. Very good. One more. Mike, this could be a last question. If you had a boat, if you had a nice boat, if you had a grand yacht and you had the pleasure of naming your own boat, <laughs> what boat would you be sailing on? Oh, goodness sakes. You know, I I would probably do something really geeky like um, Jonathan Edwards. Oh wow, <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> One of my great you know he heroes of Christian history. Um, 
who I have no idea if he ever sailed in his entire life. Um, but uh, but it would probably be something lame like that. <laughs> the Edwards. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Like it. Mike, what a pleasure and honor to speak with you and work with you. And Wes and I are looking forward to the next time that we get to yeah. work with you. I'm hoping you. to get back. That would be great. Yeah, us too. Us too. We'd love to see you yeah. back and we'd like to get get out there. We just got to talk Scoggins into it, I think. So uh, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just work it out. But thanks very much. I know you're busy. And so tell your, your wife, thanks for letting us borrow you for a little bit. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Okay. Well, great. Good to talk to you again. Okay, buddy. Take care of yourself. Thanks, Mike. All right. Bye. Bye.